Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 147th episode of Power Your Parenting, Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. In this episode, we're going to turn our attentions to our moms. Every mother-daughter relationship is complicated, and this is especially true with our own moms. We can tend to reduce our mom to one story. For example, you can idealize your mom like, oh, she was just the best mom ever, or tend to label her like, my mom was such a perfectionist. What we are going to explore in this episode is that several things can be true at once. Our guest today, Dr. Judy Rabinor, shares her journey with her mom in her newest book, The Girl in the Red Boots. And I love these two quotes from her book. Here's one by Carl Jung. Every mother contains her daughter in herself, and every daughter her mother, and every mother extends backwards into her mother and forwards into her daughter. And here's a quote by Dr. Paula Kaplan. We are taught to believe that pent-up hostility is dangerous, yet the real tragedy is pent-up love. The release of pent-up love and respect for our mothers brings the added gift of love and respect for ourselves. Our guest today, Judith Rasquet-Rabinor, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, author, and writing coach, and consultant. She offers psychotherapy consultations for individual couples and families and mental health professionals. She conducts a therapy group for binge eaters, a consultation group for mental health clinicians interested in women's issues, and two writing groups. You can read more about those groups on her website, judithruskayrabinorphd.com. She is the author of the recently published book in 2021, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother, and two previous books, A Starving Madness, Tales of Hunger, Hope, and Healing, and Befriending Your Ex After Divorce, Making Life Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. So welcome, Dr. Rabinor. Hello, Colleen. It's so <laughs> wonderful to finally meet you. Thank yes. You. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, I loved your new book that just came out, The Girl in the Red Boots. And 
I devoured it and read it in two days. And I think the reason why I loved it is, first of all, it's, it's a memoir plus. I would call it a memoir plus. And it just reads really, really well, holds your attention. But it's so interesting because it's your life work as a therapist and working with mothers and daughters and especially around eating disorders. But it's your process of your relationship with your mom. And you take us on this journey with you where your vision of your mom keeps expanding and expanding and the story keeps getting richer and richer. So I loved your book. Well, thank you very much because it is my life's work poured into that book. And I'm so pleased to hear your praise. Thank you. So why did you write this book? You know, there are so many answers to that, but I'll give you one answer. When I was 40, I got divorced from my first husband and my mother-in-law came over to my house and she and I had a wonderful relationship and she was getting remarried. And there I am getting divorced from her son. And I, I was an act, I was a player in this decision to divorce, but still now I was pretty scared now that it was really happening. She said, don't worry, you're gonna have a great time. I thought, you must be kidding. All I remembered is her complaining about her divorce and how lonely she was. 15 years of hearing her complain and now she's telling me <laughs> not to worry. So she told me some very funny stories of things that she had never told me about dating when she was divorced and I was married. And I decided that I was gonna take a writing class because I always loved to write. This was my first love. I became an English teacher after I graduated college. And then it was when I was working in a school for emotionally disturbed kids that I decided to become a psychologist. So I go take a, a writing class and I started writing stories about my mother-in-law. But by the third class, somehow there she was, my mother, the star of my what I was writing about. Mm. I started writing stories about my childhood. And I have stories in that book that I wrote in 1983. Mm, wow. Followed me around from computer to computer in a folder that would say mother, daughter, mother, daughter. And so it just always helped me to write. I mean, I'm a therapist who recommends writing to clients. Yeah. And I myself have always found writing to be a very soulful, reflective, exhilarating experience. So I had all these pieces of the story in different shapes. And then after my mother died, I, I just felt like I had to do it. Yeah. I just felt like I had to do it. I was afraid to write a memoir because I'm a psychologist and we've been trained not to tell everybody our whole story. Right. Well, I went to a JCC, a local JCC. I live in New York. And I started taking two writing classes. One was a memoir. And I started writing the same story, my story, one as a novel and one as a memoir. Mm. It was a story. And I had names for the characters, my mother and I. I was Ruby. She was Blanche. <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting, right? But anyway, yeah. the feedback I got after six months of doing this was that my voice was stronger as a memoir writer. Mm. So I just said, damn it, I'm going to do it. Why not? Yeah, yeah. So I'm at the end, I'm at the end of, the, of my life, and I want to do it. So I did it. 
Yeah. And I know as a therapist and haven't been a therapist for 28 years, that's like a big no-no to get your story out. Right. And I've been pushing against that too in my writing because, well, first of all, it feels really scary to put your story out there, right. but it's so helpful. Like your, your story in this book is so helpful. It's so helpful. I had written a book uh, 10 years ago that was about my divorce. And I wrote, I wanted to write a story about my divorce and I wanted to write a book called hundred things I wish I knew before I got divorced. But my agent said, forget it. That book has been written. And she looked at my material. She said, but you have a better book here because you have a book about co-parenting after divorce. And that's what people really need. So in that book, I did write an introductory chapter that acknowledged that I had gotten divorced and it was not a picnic. And that my ex-husband and I had really done a great job of co-parenting and you can do it too, was my message. If I did it, you can do it. And it was wonderful and it was important. And, it, and we became friends to my very, to my enormous surprise. So I was already willing to take a little chance. This felt like a bigger chance. Yeah. So what did you learn from writing this book? Well, one thing I, I started writing when I went to the JCC, this was after my mother was gone. And the name of my book at that time was called Careless Love. Mm. I felt my mother just, you know, as you know, because you read the book, I felt my mother was not introspective. She was not reflective. She was not deep. She didn't think about things. She thought that the way to make life better was to buy me a cashmere sweater. Yes. And so I was very uh, critical and I was very judgmental. And as I was writing this book, I understood that behind every judgment and every criticism is a longing. And I had a longing to know my mother better, to understand her better. And I didn't understand her. I didn't understand how she could operate on what felt like I'm embarrassed to say this now because I don't feel this way anymore, but how I felt yeah. she was like just superficial and simple. Mm -hmm. And for anybody out there listening, I, I mean, that was the biggest transformation. My experience of my mother changed as I wrote the book and I understood that her life had been hard and I didn't see the hard parts until I sat right. down and started writing and started thinking about it. But I think I saw another stage of my mother's life when she developed Parkinson's and then dementia. And I really did see that she was brave and she didn't complain a lot. And she was extremely grateful that I was such a good daughter. And she, she knew what was happening to her. I remember her once saying to me, this is not in this book, maybe it'll go in another book. She said, you've become my mother. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's dealing with a parent with dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's knows that. And it was true. And I, I just felt for her as I saw her deteriorate and really grasp the fact that she was losing it physically, mentally, everything. Yeah. It just touched me deep inside. And I started my book with a quote that said, you know, we, we think that what helps us grow is to understand uh, how angry we are. But in fact, what really helps us grow is to find out how much we, how much love we have inside. 
Yes, yes, it's a great quote. I know, it's a great quote. It's a quote by a woman named Paula Kaplan, who has written about five editions of the same book called Don't Blame Mother. <laughs> so can you talk about, like, so you had this kind of judgment, like my mom likes to go shopping and get right. these sales and the, the finest of things. But right. then you wrote a story about the pink cashmere sweater set from a different perspective. That's right. Can you talk about that? Yes, because by the time I wrote that story, when I was young, when, you know, when, when, when I started writing, like in my 40s, I wrote that story. But when I got older, I understood that wrapped up in that pink cashmere sweater was my mother's generosity, that I was 12 years old going to a party, and this was her brand new cashmere sweater set. And she, I still remember how she had it zipped up in this plastic bag. <laughs> and she loaned it to me. And now I know that there are so many friends of mine read my book and they said, well, you were lucky. My mother never took me shopping for a cashmere sweater and never would have lent me her cashmere sweater <laughs> either. She just, right. Yeah. In that loaning me sweater and many other things that happened, she really just in, endorsed and validated that I was growing up, that I was becoming a young woman. And she supported that. And she was happy for it. And she thought I was so pretty and so cute. And I also have so, I've heard so many stories from people about how their parents were envious of them. Uh, the yeah. amount of mothers who are genu genuinely envious of their daughters or they're just depressed in their own life and they can hardly partake in the joy and the exuberance of a teenage daughter. They find it annoying. And my mother did right. She found my teenage exuberance uh, exciting and she identified with it. And that was a very healthy, resilient part of her. But I didn't understand that until, I'm sad to say, until she was so deteriorated. Mm -hmm. I remember there was one day that we were riding up Madison Avenue in a taxi cab and we were passing all these stores and she looked at me and she said, I'm never going to walk on these streets again. Mm. And that was right. Mm. She never walked on those streets again. Mm. She, you know, just just getting in and out, going to a hospital and getting from the front door to the doctor's office was an expedition at that point. And then later right. she was in a wheelchair. Right, exactly. But when so, she, was, she was exuberant and she was she was a fan of mine. I felt like she was my fan. Lots yes. of people don't have that. Right. So can you tell us who the girl in the red boots is? Well, the girl in the red boots was actually my mother. She, uh, I mean, I tell an adorable story about how my mother allowed me to buy and splash around in these red boots. And even when she found me naked outside, she thought I was the cutest <laughs> thing. But what I really realized is that my mother was the real girl in the red boots, that she had had a lot of hardships in her life. I don't want to spoil the book for anybody who's going to read it. Yeah. But that she had a lot of courage and a lot of resilience. And she just swallowed a couple of big bullets when she was young. And I didn't think about it because I had seen my mother. My mother had painted a story, how lucky she was. She eloped with my father. 
she was the captain of the cheerleaders and he was the captain of the of the football team. And I thought, oh my God, what a romantic story. How can I ever find anything like that? And later when I got older, I understood it wasn't so romantic. I was probably giving everybody a lot of clues, but that's okay. <laughs> it wasn't so romantic at all. Right. Yeah. So there's another theme that kind of goes through the book and it's that you work with a lot of mothers and daughters yeah. and lead lots of retreats. And so can you talk about like how therapy helps people change? Well, there are two things. One is how therapy helps people change. Um, uh-huh. And of course, that's what we're trained to do. So therapy helps people change because even that little statement that I made earlier, behind every criticism is a longing. So I would have mothers and daughters in my office and they'd be angry at each other. And the daughter would be saying, you did this and you did that. And one great example is a daughter saying to her mother, you dragged me to from one diet doctor to another. Don't you understand that that was really bad for me, that that changed my set point, that you shamed me in front of the whole family, that you shamed me in front of my friends. You dragged me out of school early to go to the diet doctor. And now we know that diet doctors change people's biology and they make it very even harder for people to lose weight. And I remember saying to her, so what is it you think you wanted from your mother? And what she wanted was her mother's compassion. That's what mm. she wanted. And her mother wanted to fix it. And that's what we sometimes do as mothers. We want to yes. Here's a problem. We want to fix it. Yes. So she tried to fix it. And she fixed it in a way that didn't really fix it. But I said to the mother, did you ever know that about your daughter? And she said, no, I never knew that. I took you to diet doctors because I didn't want you to have my fate. I was the fattest girl in the class. Mm. Daughter mm. looked at the mother and she said, you what? I never knew that. And so here you see a mother protecting her daughter, but actually causing a problem. Yeah. Here's a funny thing. My mother, I felt, was so unreflective and was so superficially focused that when I became a therapist, you know, if my kids had a problem, I would say, sit down, <laughs> what's wrong? You know, let's talk about it. And my kids, when they were in high school, they would say to me, leave us alone. We're not your patients. You know, I have a bad teacher. That's what's wrong. I have a bad teacher. The teacher hates me. We don't have to have a whole therapy session. <laughs> it's so true. It's so Is true. That true? Did that, I'm, I know being a therapist, it's an occupational hazard, right? That we therapize our kids. Yes. I had like a stack of parenting books that was like three or four feet high to help me write my first book. And my daughter came in and she said, Oh my God, mom, am I that hard to parent? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. I, I get that. So you talk about, and I think this goes with the, how therapy can help people change, is the danger of a single story. Can you talk about that? I think one of the things we learned in the last couple of decades is about the brain and the, the, the findings from brain science that we are wired to remember the bad. We are wired for survival. And so if a parent does something that feels mean or feels stupid or feels harsh or feels inappropriate 
and a child is hurt and wounded, they will remember that. Mm-hmm. They will remember that because they want, it's like, I'm not going to go near that hot stove again. But that's yes. just one part of the story. That's yes. just one part of the story. And that's what I learned, actually, as a therapist in helping mothers and daughters reclaim their relationship, that very often either the mother or the daughter was stuck on one or two or certain parts of the story that happened. And when that story could be opened up and when I could help them both listen to each other, there was always a deeper story. Should I give an example? Sure. Well, a really terrible example is um, a patient of mine who her father had committed suicide. So her parents got divorced and her father committed suicide after the divorce. And she was in the apartment when he killed himself. Mm. Right. Mm. Now she has one parent, the mother, and guess what? She blames the mother. She blames mm. the mother. Why? I mean, that's what this therapy was about. It was about untangling this story, what she, how scared she really was. If first I lost you because you got divorced and you were a terrible mother, you went to work and I was always the last kid picked up at school, I'd be sitting in the cold on the steps of the school. And then I lost him, maybe I'm going to, so she had barricaded herself from the mother. Mm. So that mm. she wouldn't have to lose the mother. And it took quite a bit of, of just me helping them slow down and listen. What was it like for you to be sitting on those schoolroom, on, on, the, on the steps of the schoolhouse? And what did you worry about? And what was it like when your dad died? And how did you realize that he had killed himself? And what did you think had really gone on? And the mother had, there was plenty of room for the mother to tell her part of the story too. The mother brought up in therapy, you know, your dad and I got divorced because he was gay. Oh. He never wanted to tell you. And then he had a relationship with a man and then that relationship fell apart. And so when this young woman heard this, talk about the danger of a single story. So mm-hmm. as this story expanded. Yeah. As this story expanded and she understood how complicated it was and you know, why her mother had not told her about her father being gay, because in some way the mother still wanted to protect the father. Yeah, yeah. And wanted to protect her. And Mm -hmm. all of this led to the girl being so angry at her mother. And as this story deepened and unfolded, they were able to really bond again. Mm -hmm. And all of this always made me think about my own life, you know, and after all, in our field, we learn that secrets are always damaging, but all parents have secrets from children. Right. Parents don't tell children every single thing that's going on and the way they always feel. And so I had to really think about it. I thought of my mother as very secretive. And I began really thinking about her secrets and that maybe she just did what she thought was best, just like this woman who didn't tell her daughter that um, her father had been gay because she wanted to protect her. Well, maybe some of the secrets my mother kept from me, she thought she was doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So this brings up another question here is that how can therapy change the therapist? Yeah, well, I think as uh, that therapists 
are tremendously changed by doing this work. I mean, that in all the listening skills we teach people, we learn them also, and hopefully we bring some of them into our own lives. But you can't do this kind of work, helping people listen and become better listeners without it affecting us. Yeah. And, and often I say therapy is called the talking cure, but it's not really the talking cure. It's the listening cure. And yeah. we teach people to listen to themselves. Mm-hmm teach them to listen to themselves. And I remember, I don't think this would spoil the book for anybody. There was a moment, my mother was very secretive with things that happened with me when I was younger and that made me very angry at her. But when my own father was dying, the doctor told us, don't tell your father he's dying. Mm. The thinking at that time was that people need hope. And if you tell them they're dying, you'll give up. Now the thinking is completely different. Now I think mainstream thinking is if someone is dying, having a goodbye, having an opportunity to say goodbye, an opportunity to assess your life, an opportunity to ask for forgiveness, an opportunity to express love. These are all the most important things that one can do at the end of their life, not think I'm getting better. Right. And I should just eat some more rice pudding or something. But anyway, it wasn't until I listened to some patients of mine talk about how they dealt with their dying parents. And I remembered how I dealt with my dying father. And I remembered an awful incident where my father was, was sitting with an oxygen tank and he was emaciated and he was dying. And he could hardly breathe and he could hardly talk. And all of a sudden he turned the hi-fi so loudly Uh, turned it up and I ran into the room and I said, what's wrong? And he said, what's wrong with me? Everyone's telling me I'm getting better, but I'm not getting better, am I? Mm. Mm. And you know what I did? You know what I did? Nothing, Mm. nothing. I just felt like I'd go along with the party line, what the doctor and my mother said. But in thinking about it, and this is how I think therapy changes the therapist, I thought, Maybe it was too hard for me to go against the doctor and my mother. Maybe it was too hard to me for me to think of telling my father, no, daddy, you're dying. Yeah. I mean, that's not an easy conversation to have at any age. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Without any support, I wasn't courageous enough. I wasn't thoughtful enough. I didn't grab the family together and say, we're doing the wrong thing. I didn't know. I just followed orders. Right. I followed orders. And that was something I had criticized my mother about, following doctor's orders. And here it is 30 years later, and I'm following doctor's orders. Mm, Yeah. I think being a therapist helps us slow down, pause, be more reflective, and and try to take more. we We ask our patients to take risks and to take responsibility for what it is they feel. And I think some of it rubs off on us. And it changes us. Yeah, no, it's true. I definitely learned from my my clients for sure. I think I think what it's done for me is, I mean, I can still be judgmental for sure, but it's definitely me too. Me too. <laughs> but it's definitely made me a lot less judgmental and a lot more compassionate because I know that if I was in the same circumstance as many of my clients, I could be I could be them. 
some people are in really hard circumstances and that they are trying to do the best they can given really horrible situations. So I think it's helped me that way. And then I, on, on the lighter side, you know, I remember having therapy with a mom who had a 12 year old daughter and my daughter was 12. And so I was meeting with the daughter and she goes, Oh my God, my mom is so annoying. And I said, why is she annoying? And she goes, like how she chews her food. And like when she sits and watches TV, like she shakes her foot. And I was just dying laughing because I was like, oh, they're all the same, all these 12 year olds. Cause right. I annoyed the heck out of my own daughter, but it helped me to see what was normal. You know, is you, you see, cause you get to see like, that's, that's how they think. And you get to see not only on the lighter side, but you get to see kind of the universal experience of, of people and suffering and grief. I know. I, I totally agree. And, you know, then things that we say in our offices to people, well, we have, we listen to them also. Like, you know, daughters have to be, have to break away from their mothers. The tie is so strong. Mm-hmm. They have to find something wrong with their mother. So it's either you chew too loudly, <laughs> you chew too loudly, or you tap your foot, or why are you wearing that sweater? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the same sweater you wore yesterday? And now we're the mothers, and what do we care if we wear the same sweater two days ago? It is very true. And so, you know, I know I would find myself saying things to families, and then I would want, I think that applies to me too. Like one of the things I say often is every family is the same story of ascending children and descending parents. And, you know, that's a 12-year-old who wants more power more independence, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Want to get away from us, right? Exactly. Yes. And, so, yeah. Is it giving away too much if you tell the Sally Raphael story? Because I love that story. Well, there's so many parts of that story, but I don't think it's giving so much away. So I, I guess I had been on Oprah, and then I got a call from Sally Jesse Raphael, and for Oprah, I went to Chicago and I did a great job. And it was an extremely exciting moment in my life. I, I still, bet. I still have a video of it on my website, even though it happened in the 90s, which is a pretty long time ago. <laughs> That's okay. But um, when I got invited to Sally Jesse Raphael, I had no, I didn't even really know who she was because my mother was home watching television during the day. That was another thing I put her down for. <laughs> <laughs> She's home watching television and I'm out working, saving the world. <laughs> but anyway... But I didn't have to do this. But the first thing I did is I called my mother. And I, because my mother adored her. She watched her every day. (laughs) And I I got invited to Sally Jesse Raphael. Do you want to come with me? My mother said, Sally Jesse Raphael, of (laughs) course. And so that was my first impulse is I wanted to bring my mother because a few reasons. Probably I knew she'd love it. And second of all, I probably wanted her to be proud of me. Yeah. I knew Mm -hmm. it would be an honor. And that's another thing that doesn't change, that even though these girls who are annoyed by their mothers, they want their mothers to love them. And even yes. though, right. And so then, then though, the next thing my mother said is, and what are you going to wear? You're not going to wear that pink jacket that you wore on <laughs> Oprah. That was the worst jacket. And she launched into that. So any, And then I thought, oh my God, how could I have done this? My mother gets on my nerves. She's so annoying. And I invited her. <laughs> She's probably going to drive me crazy. 
She was all set to go find something new for me to wear. And if I didn't like it, she'd return it. She'd buy me a few outfits. <laughs> and I kept thinking, you're, I, I kept feeling these horrible feelings that you have no idea who I am. You have no idea how important this is to my career. And all you're worrying about is what I'm going to wear. <laughs> Everyone isn't that interested in what I wear as a psychologist. <laughs> of course, I always like to look as good as I could. <laughs> but anyway, um, and I did a great job on the show, uh, helping these mothers and daughters talk to each other and get down underneath. Yeah. And then when I got out of the show with my mother, I felt she moved into her superficial mode again. And I had, was faced with how do I talk to her and get her to know more about me, which is what I wanted and that is really what most mothers and daughters want, is to have a deeper connection. Yes. Not just talking about recipes and clothing and raising children. And it's hard to do for people who come into... My mother was of a different generation. That was another thing that I got to understand when you asked me, what did, what did you learn in writing the book? Yeah. In the beginning of the book, there's a line. It says, my mother was born in 1918. And I never really thought about the fact that this fact shaped her life. My mother was born one year before women got the right to vote. Mm. When I was in my first marriage and I got my first credit card, my husband was in law school and I was a teacher working. And that credit card was in the name of my husband. It was in the name of Mrs. Arnold Rabinor. Wow. Was, I know, this is wow. real. So the fact <laughs> that my mother and and I was the person working. I know. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So my mother had a lot of ideas about women and looking good and being thin and being pretty and, and holding on to your husband and definitely not getting divorced. That was something you'd really be taking your life in your hands if you thought about getting divorced. Why give up a husband who, you know, is going to support you? And what? You might have financial responsibility, having no experience with the idea that, uh, yeah. yeah, that I might be a little more independent than you think, Ma. <laughs> so you hear, even though you read the book and you saw that by the end of my mother's life, I totally loved and respected her. I still can remember being that person. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you understand me? Why don't you get me? And that's what daughters want. They want to feel their mother gets them. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what, that's what we want out of our friends and our husbands and anybody we're close to. We want to feel these people get us. But yeah, the generations are different. Probably everybody today, I know that, um, my, I mean, my granddaughter understands one day I'm, uh, I'm with her and it's raining and her mother was supposed to come pick us up. And she said, Nana, why don't you call Uber? <laughs> and these kids are growing up fast, exactly. And there was another time that my grandson, I told him that my Uber app wasn't working. He said, don't you have Lyft? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, they, and they can fix our computers, you know, easily. Like when you- Yes, were yes, absolutely. Probably, young kids could probably build a website. And <laughs> are, are kind of intimidating to us, to put it mildly. If a mom is listening out there and she's 
we'll just say she's not at peace with her own mother. Is there yeah. anything that she can do to improve? And, and what if her mom has passed away? Is there anything she could do? Yes, it's never too late to make peace with your mother. I mean, really thinking about your mother's life and writing classes. I mean, I, I teach writing classes now and a woman in the writing class we had last night, we had a holiday party. Of course, this is all on Zoom. It's a completely crazy life that we're leading, having a yes. holiday party on Zoom, but that's what we're doing. Yes. This is the last class of the first semester. And she said, this class has changed my life. I've really learned to think about some of the things that happened in my childhood and how they affected me. So, I mean, if in order to prevent the carrying the trauma of one generation to the next, we need to really work hard on ourselves. Yes. And therapy is, of course, one way. And I guess just being very mindful uh, so that whatever it is that she doesn't want to repeat, she really thinks about how easy it is to repeat the sins of our parents. I mean, that is really true. The way we were raised has impacted us normally. Talk about that pink cashmere sweater. I'm going to tell you something funny. But my book came out in May. So this is the second, the second year of the pandemic. And I think we were in a good moment then. Uh -huh. We didn't have this new Omicron thing flying around. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I went into a store and I said, I'm going to buy something new for my book launch. And I bought myself a pink cashmere sweater. And it wasn't until I was on the launch, right, I was on the launch being interviewed that I realized I bought myself a pink cashmere sweater. Oh, wow. I wanted to have my mother with me. Wow. And you weren't even conscious about it. I did not consciously think about it until the day of the launch. Wow. And then I talked about it on the launch. I said, you know, our mother's... Uh, our mothers drive us crazy, and yet, if you had a mother who was good enough, she gave you life. She gave you uh, uh, your start. And even if she was, did many things wrong, like she didn't chew her food properly, she talked too fast. <laughs> Certainly, she didn't drive properly, right? <laughs> right, yeah. It's another thing we do wrong. So who is it that is loved so deeply and blamed so mercilessly other than a mother? <laughs> That just seems to be the definition of a mother, right? Yes, yes, yes. Deeply loved and mercilessly blamed for what goes wrong. It's true. It is really true. So my writing, my second book, really helped heal something with my own mom, which... Really? Oh, I'd love to hear about this. Yeah. My mom was perfect, you know, growing up. She dressed perfectly. She's the perfect weight. She was, the house was perfect. And so I was intimidated because there was a right way to do everything in terms of cutting an apple or cutting a tomato or making your bed. Everything had to be perfect. And I was definitely not a perfect kid. So I could blame a lot of things on her around that. But then I'm writing about in my, in my book, Dial Up the Dream, that's coming out in May is about like, what does it look like for a mom to mother an 18 to 25 year old daughter? Like, how do you mother a young adult daughter? And which I think is full of ambiguity and confusion and complications. And when I'm, I'm writing about this, I realized my mom was awesome at it. Like she was awesome. 
Like she didn't meddle in my life. She let me stay in contact with her. We became friends. We went to the art museum. We did things together. And the biggest thing she did, which I don't know how she did it, was I am divorced. And my husband at the time was rude as can be to her and did not treat me well. And she saw that. And she didn't meddle. She didn't open her mouth, which was appropriate at that time. Now, she had my back when I said I needed, I thought I needed to get a divorce. She was, was ferocious, even though she was a fierce Catholic woman, staunch Catholic. And so, and that was not a cool thing to do. And yet no. she had my back. I know what you mean is that my book changed how I saw my mom. It was like this huge aha. Like, wow. Wow, she was amazing as at adulting. Cause I'm because I am just starting to feel, well, it is really hard to let go. It's really hard to not control. It's really hard to not give advice. And I'm feeling it. And I just like, wow. So I agree that this writing gives you a whole nother perspective. You don't have to write a book, but just oh, right. Exactly. You don't have to write a book, but just writing just what you're talking about. I mean, thinking about your mother treating you, she it sounds like she had a very healthy comprehension of boundaries. Yeah. And she let go, and yet she stood behind you. Yeah. A really hard thing to do. <laughs> right. She let go and stood behind you. Yes. All right. We could talk forever, but... Um, forever. Yeah, uh, for sure. So is there anything else that you want the the listeners to take away from reading your book i did a workshop the other day of course it was on zoom but anyway it didn't matter yeah. and i asked everybody to do this exercise so anybody sitting out there as long as you're not driving your car mm -hmm. imagine that your mother is standing at the doorway of the room that you're sitting in right now and imagine that she wants to come in and sit with you she wants to sit right next to you Take a look at your mother. What do you feel as you imagine your mother coming in right now and sitting down beside you? Do you welcome her? Do you feel, this is my space, Ma. Mm -hmm. This is my space. Just take a moment and jot down how you're feeling as you imagine your mother wanting to come in and sit down beside you now. And if we were able to do this in a group, we would hear a lot of diverse experiences. That's what I did in the group. And I think the most important thing to, to know is that the mothers are not perfect, that all relationships contain ambivalence. And there's no right or wrong answer to this exercise that you could feel, no, mom, this is my space. And you could feel, come on in, I could use your support. And you may feel both of those things at different moments, and that's perfectly normal. And that's because relationships contain ambivalence. But when we're young, we are so dependent on our mothers that there are everything, that there are first lovers and there are first heartbreaks. There are everything. Yes. And it's very hard to really adjust to the fact that a real relationship contains ambivalence and it's okay. 
it's okay to feel, no, mom, this isn't where I'd want you to be. I like listening to this talk all by myself. <laughs> yes. And so that is what resolving conflict is. It's sometimes resolving conflicts or, or overcoming feeling. We have to learn to live with feelings that we don't always like. We don't, our mothers were not perfect. They might have been perfect in some ways, but no human being is perfect. Is there I, anybody out there who's perfect? No. no. And therefore, your kids aren't perfect, your husband isn't perfect, and your mother wasn't perfect. <laughs> yes. So I have a quote from you that I want to read because I just think it's beautiful, kind of sums up a lot of things we're talking about, that grief has been my teacher, helping me understand, accept, and make peace with the fragility of life, the complexity of love, and the imperfections inherent in all relationships especially mothering. Mothering is the most intense of, of, at least it was for me. People are different. People are different. For some people, maybe having six kids was like easy and it didn't seem so intense, but it was intense for me. But but, um, mothering and the way we were mothered has profoundly impacted how we mother and how we love and how we anticipate being loved. And so the more we can really understand the complexity of our own story, the more likely we are to have satisfying relationships. And satisfying relationships means tolerating the ambivalence, tolerating that we're two separate people. And, you know, your mother might like to wear high heels and you like to wear sneakers. And that's just how it is. Yes. Beautiful. Well, Judy, thank you so much. So where can these moms find your book and how could they contact you? They can find it on Amazon mm-hmm. uh, or they can find it in a local bookstore. I don't know if your local bookstore will have it, but it's on the internet on Barnes and Nobles, all kinds of independent bookstores and Amazon. And they can find me. Did you, maybe you'll put my website up. when, when For you, sure. And they can find me on my website. And... My email is there too, if they want to get in touch with me. Okay. And I hope we do something together again. This would be really (laughs) fun. We could run a little retreat. (laughs) That would be a lot of fun. It was so wonderful to meet you and have this conversation. And thank you for writing the book. Oh, and thank you for having me. And I'm excited for you with your new book, you know, with the daughters of the the next chunk up. Yes, yes. And I'm excited for you. You'll have a lot of fun on your book launch. I will. (laughs) And I hope our friends cross again. Yes, me too. All right. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give... Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.